Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home? Introducing DashPass from DoorDash, your ultimate ticket to convenience and savings. With DashPass, you gain exclusive access to unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, along with members-only deals and discounts that will leave your wallet smiling. Whether you're craving the flavors of your favorite restaurants, need groceries from across town, or anything in between, DashPass ensures that everything you need is just a few clicks away, delivered right to your door. With DashPass, not only do you enjoy $0 delivery fees, but you'll also benefit from lower service fees on eligible orders, making it the most affordable way to satisfy your cravings and stock up on essentials from your local favorites. What I really love is how quickly DashPass pays for itself. On average, it takes just two orders, which makes it a no-brainer investment for your budget. And as if that weren't enough, DashPass grants you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items, adding an extra layer of excitement to your DoorDash experience. You get all this for only $9.99 a month, which is a small price to pay for unlimited convenience and savings. My family and I have had DoorDash for the past year or so, and while I make most meals at home, I don't know that I could mom without it. I used it twice just this past week while we were dealing with a stomach bug at home, and it was so nice to have and to be able to focus on getting better and not running all over town to pick everything up for everyone. Don't wait. Sign up for DashPass now and unlock a world of possibilities, all from the comfort of your home. DashPass from DoorDash, delivering joy, convenience, and savings straight to your doorstep. Get more from delivery for less with DashPass. $0 delivery fees and reduced service fees on eligible DoorDash orders. Sign up for DashPass today and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply. Hey guys, and welcome to the Moms and Murder Podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I am great. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. You're back in Florida. You're back in the I Florida am. weather. I am. Um, how was the weather on your trip? The weather on my trip couldn't have been any better, actually. It was perfect autumn weather, and I got to see all the autumn things that we talked about uh, missing in Florida, like color-changing leaves. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, yeah, yeah. It was a really a thing. And uh, I sent pictures to like everybody I know. I was like, look at all these trees. Look at all these colors. And um, yeah, it was really nice. It was beautiful. And I had yeah, such a Yeah, it looked like you were time. in a painting. Yeah, it, it really did. I love it up there. I mean, when it's not like super freezing cold, which it will be soon. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) So we just uh, missed the freezing frigid weather and made it in time for a little bit of fall. And my family was saying that it was actually like really, really warm, um, unseasonably so. And I probably can understand that because there was a couple of days that I just wore like t-shirts. So yeah, that was – Oh, wow. Yeah, it was pretty warm, but it was nice. Oh, good. I wore an inflatable toilet as part of my Halloween costume, and it was like 80-something degrees, and my daughter was like, Mom, you have to wear jeans because that's what goes with it. Like, it matches. And so not only am I squeaking walking down the street, I'm just so freaking hot in this thing, and it has a fan going, so I'm like, it's okay, but like, it's only, you know, shooting air at me, like, 
the right side of my love handle and that was yeah. like it. Oh, but and I was it's like, probably never still again. it's warm air, right? So it's not like it's it's yeah, not like it's, it's not like having conditioning. AC connect yeah. to me. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh so my oldest son was also an inflatable. He finally got his dream of being the inflatable T Rex. He's been asking it. for that costume I think for like four years now and for – I don't even know why. I just always say no, but I did. I was always saying no, no, no. Let's pick something else. And finally, he was still asking for it. So I was like, you know what? This is the year. We're just going to do the inflatable T-Rex. So he did it and uh, it was nice. He said the same thing though, that it was hot inside the suit even though we were up where it was cooler. So yeah, they need to figure out how to make those things – Put an AC in there. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That seems like a reasonable thing. And speaking of Halloween, last thing I'll say about it, Heidi Klum, who was one of our, like, (laughs) answers uh, a couple weeks ago about who's, like, the queen of Halloween or whatever, she dressed up as a worm this year, and it's all I can think about. (laughs) I love it so much. The interview she did with, I think, like, Inside Edition or something, laying on the ground, Entertainment Tonight, laying on the ground and being like, I just want to make people smile. I'm like, oh my gosh, Heidi Klum, I love you so much. (laughs) Yeah. And if you have not seen that costume, whatever you're picturing when we say she dressed as a worm, like it's not even that. You have to go look it up because Mm -mm. it's the most hysterical thing I think I've ever seen. Melissa sent it to me and I was like, there's no way she's being serious. Like this has to be a joke. (laughs) And she She was serious. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So we'll have to post that on Instagram or something. If you haven't seen it, oh my gosh, it just, it's really made my week. And now of course there's memes that are coming out with it. I just, I retweeted something that was like, um, this is how your email finds me. And it's just (laughs) a picture. A hundred percent true. So (laughs) yes, so much fun. So much fun. All right. So we'll dive into the story for this week. Um, And we're actually going to kind of take a little bit of a look back into a story that we released earlier this year on February 1st. It was the episode about the murder of Dorothy Stratton. So to jog your memory, Dorothy was a young Playboy playmate who had come up in the world after her boyfriend, Paul Snyder, introduced her to a life of luxury and extravagance. Dorothy had grown up very poor and had to start working to help her mom pay the bills when she was just a young teenager. Up until she was 18, Dorothy was really a pretty quiet and reserved young woman. She wasn't into the party scene and she didn't really care about boys. But her striking looks made her stand out in her hometown of Vancouver, British Columbia. Now, Paul Snyder was 26 when he first saw Dorothy working at a Dairy Queen, and he immediately saw a woman that he could manipulate into helping himself get rich. He groomed Dorothy and encouraged her to take on a completely different persona. And eventually, he promoted her to Playboy, and she did become a Playmate, later appearing in the magazine as Miss August and appearing on a TV special for Playboy, which eventually led to Dorothy acquiring acting roles, and her career took off. A star was born. But the more successful Dorothy was in her career, the worse things got in the relationship with Paul Snyder, who was beginning to lose his control over Dorothy. She no longer felt that he really had anything to hold over her head because she earned her way to stardom by herself. She distanced herself from Paul and began a new relationship. But when Paul found out, he lost his grip on reality and began plotting a murder-suicide. Dorothy and Paul were both found dead after he shot her and then himself in his basement. In that episode of the podcast, we mentioned that part of the story was that Paul Snyder was also the man responsible for coming up with the idea for what would later become the infamous Chippendales. Paul had seen a gay male review show and thought it would be fun to create a similar show, only targeting women instead of men. 
At the time, Paul was working as a show promoter, and he told this idea to a man named Steve Banerjee, who owned a local disco club called Destiny the Second. Steve loved Paul's idea for a male review show geared towards women. He'd been looking for ways to fill the slow weeknights at the club. Paul wasn't around to witness the result of his vision, but Steve and his business partner Bruce began planning for male exotic dance night for ladies only, which is quite a title. <laughs> that's it's a mouthful. <laughs> what are you doing tonight? I'm going to male exotic dance night for ladies only. <laughs> Put that on a business card. <laughs> so Steve and Bruce eventually changed the name of the club from Destiny 2 to Chippendales. And from there, the legacy was born. But with great success comes great risk. And in the end, Chippendales became the rise and the fall of Steve Banerjee. Steve was born on October 8th, 1946 in India to an upper class family of printers. When he was in his 20s, he had high aspirations, and he moved to L.A. with the specific goal of hitting it big and making a lot of money. It is a very lofty goal, but, like, that's everyone's dream when they move to L.A., so I feel like not many people do that. They don't actually well, – yeah, I think the numbers to, are not in your favor. Right. <laughs> for but sure. It, isn't that what everyone wants, though, right? They want to move to L.A. and hit it big and make a lot of money. Yeah. So Steve was willing to do whatever it took. He began by operating a gas station while he saved up the money to buy another business. And in 1975, he finally had enough to buy a rock club in Culver City that was called Round Robin. He and his partner turned that club into the disco Destiny 2. Just two years later, Steve's partner wanted to sell his interest in the business, so Steve started to consider other potential partners. Later in 1977, he met a young law student named Bruce who was at the club often. And Bruce and his father eventually bought the available interest in the club, but it was really Steve and Bruce who were the main decision makers. Bruce's father didn't have any hands-on with the business dealings. So Steve and his new partner, Bruce, tried to fill the weeknights at the club with different activities, but they were all really kind of random. They had disco dances for singles, which makes sense at a disco club, but they also had backgammon tournaments, mud wrestling, and more. That sounds like a real-life panic at the disco. Like, there's just so many things going on. (laughs) What do we put in this room? I have no idea. Backgammon. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So when Paul Snyder mentioned a male review show, Steve and Bruce thought that was the perfect idea for their club, and they ran with it. After the club name was changed to Chippendales, they started to advertise the new show with flyers that read, Chippendales presents male exotic dancers. Ladies only will be admitted during this show. In the beginning, nobody really thought out a plan for exactly what the show would include, or rather, what it shouldn't include. And it was basically just a bunch of guys running around dancing and stripping down to just a jockstrap. According to Bruce, it was, quote, almost full Monty, end quote, because the jock straps would slip off at times. The mental image I have of the inside of this place, honestly, it's funny. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm trying not to imagine it. Just like slippery jock straps everywhere, backgammon <laughs> tournaments going on in the back room. Like, what if you walk in the wrong room? That could really ruin your night. Exactly. Or make it, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> So the show doesn't last very long due to this lewd nature, and just three shows in, police actually show up and raid the club, arresting three dancers and three customers for engaging in lewd acts. Steve was actually charged with providing entertainment without a license. Oh my gosh. Which we should also be fined for. So after this 
bust, Stephen Bruce decided to revamp the show by clothing the dancers in revealing outfits that wouldn't risk exposing the whole shebang to the audience. At this time, there's no template for what a male exotic dancer would wear, so they found inspiration from the women's Playboy Bunny costume. So the Chippendales borrowed the idea to use cuffs, collars, and bow ties paired with black spandex pants, leaving their chest bare and glistening, which is not a word (laughs) either of us chose, but is a direct quote. (laughs) So this ideal Chippendale candidate was over 5'11", somewhere between the ages of 21 and 26, who works out and has masculine looks and confidence. And so the Chippendales did earn a reputation for being more classy than some of the other male review show performers. All the staff members were really, really squeaky clean. And Steve told the LA Times, quote, what we sell is your basic female instinct. That is stunning looking men with a lot of class, a touch of education, (laughs) and a flair for style, end quote. So (laughs) I just, I had to make you... I had to make you How read this you? quote, Melissa, <laughs> because, yeah, isn't that your basic female instinct? <laughs> I mean, the most basic instinct. I, there's not even one thing on there Lizard that I'm brain. like, yeah. That's like I all want- the way back to like, <laughs> okay, that's, I mean, that's quite a quote. But yeah, that's what he was selling. <laughs> it is so much, but like a touch of education. Why would you even throw that in there? You're like thrusting at my face, I guess, in spandex. I don't care where you got your degree. <laughs> I, so when women showed up to the club for the Chippendale show, they would be escorted to their chair and they'd be waited on hand and foot for the night. Waiters were on hand to refill drinks and even light their cigarettes for them. And when it was showtime, things could get pretty intense. These sweaty, tanned men would prance around in G-strings while women stuffed dollar bills inside, hoping to get a little kiss, or even, if they were lucky, to be whisked up onto the stage. The women at these shows were encouraged to touch the performers, which is something that is typically not allowed in strip clubs. And yeah, so this policy actually led to some very rowdy behavior. One former Chippendale said, quote, those women act crazy. They get pretty aggressive by the end of the show, end quote. Women would just be throwing themselves into a crowd of other women trying to get close enough to touch the performers while they were dancing. Madness is what I'm picturing. Yeah. <laughs> and very just awkward. I, I feel like just I, to be a performer and in, in that atmosphere would give me an immediate panic attack. Yeah, I don't get it. I don't want people touching me. Anyway, so the Chippendales really took off during a time when women were kind of demanding empowerment and they were marching in the streets in take back the night rallies. And so women at this time seemed to really love that they could go to these shows, these Chippendale shows and have these attractive young men doting on them instead of it being the other way around. One of Chippendale's eventual associate producers named Candace Marin told Elle, quote, Chippendales was not where young women were coming to admire attractive men. Chippendales was the place where women were coming to be admired by attractive men. I'd tell the guys to find the least attractive lady in the room and compliment them. The minute I told them that, they understood the veracity of it. End quote. Okay, so if you were ever chosen at one of these things and (laughs) somebody came up and talked to you, how do you feel now? I wouldn't feel great. Right. And it probably would have happened to me. Right. Right. 
I mean, oh. no, not right. <laughs> <laughs> you are way too enthusiastic to be like, absolutely. Well, every my, room. My brain, <laughs> my brain caught up with what you said. I was like, wait, no. <laughs> no, it's all right. So Male Exotic Night was a smashing success at the club, needless to say, and it drew in crowds of women until Stephen Bruce eventually had to start running the show three nights a week because that's how much demand they had. All was going perfectly, but they wanted to keep the show relevant and unique, so they hired a man named Nick DeNoia, who was an Emmy Award-winning choreographer, director, screenwriter, and producer, and he was hired to kind of take this Chippendales act to the next level. Nick was originally from New Jersey, but had moved to L.A. in the 1970s. He created and directed numerous short films for Unicorn Tales, which is a series of musical shorts for young audiences. He won two Emmy Awards for his Unicorn Tale specials, and he was also known for producing and directing stage musicals, comedies, and concerts. And we have so much more to get into with this story after a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. Everyone has those people in their lives that are just impossible to shop for, whether it's the person that has it all or the person you want to give it all to. Uncommon Goods is the place to find it. Uncommon Goods is just that, uncommon. It's the place to find everything from art and jewelry to home and bar, just about anything you can think of. Uncommon Goods has it. Take, for example, the incredible personalized National Parks scratch-off poster that I bought a friend who is a big-time National Parks traveler. The artist created 63 original illustrated icons to represent the 63 national parks so she can just scratch them off as she visits, making it both practical and really just a pretty piece of art. And since it's personalized, I was able to put a message on it that I knew she would really love, really making it the perfect gift for her and something I wouldn't have found anywhere else. And as an added bonus, with every purchase you make at Uncommon Goods, they'll give back $1 to a nonprofit partner of your choice. To date, they've donated more than $2.5 million. To get 15% off your next gift, go to uncommongoods.com slash momsandmurder. That's uncommongoods.com slash momsandmurder for 15% off. Don't miss out on this limited time offer. Uncommon Goods, we're all out of the ordinary. We all love a good mystery. In fact, that's probably why you're here listening to us right now. And if you're looking for a way to unwind from your day while still scratching that mystery-loving itch, check out June's Journey. June's Journey is the free-to-download game where you get to be the detective. You'll play as Detective June Parker, an amateur detective herself, who is on a quest to solve her sister's murder as well as uncover her family's secrets. To help June out, you'll find hidden objects as well as a variety of game modes and puzzles just waiting for you to solve. Puzzle games are really my thing, and I'm currently in the third chapter of June's Journey. The scenes are elaborate and challenges are intriguing, and now you can even play in the detective club. You can chat and play with or against other June's Journey players and have the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. June's Journey is a game I love to play when I need a little pick-me-up. If I feel like I'm hitting a bit of a mental block, I'll just play for a few minutes and get back to what I was doing before after hanging out with June for a bit. Find your inner detective. Download June's Journey today. Available on Android and iOS mobile devices, as well as on PC through Facebook games. And now back to the episode. So before the break, we were discussing the origins of Chippendales and how this whole thing really got started. And they also, during this time, bring in Nick DeNoia, who's this Emmy Award-winning choreographer, to really take the show to the next level. And Nick turns out to be a huge blessing for Stephen Bruce. 
He helps them elevate the show in a way that Steve and Bruce were really wanting to. And eventually Nick moved to New York to set up a Chippendale show there. And he brought along his associate producer, Candace, with him. So shortly after Nick had everything set up with the New York show, Steve and Bruce came up with a deal for Nick. They wrote this deal down on a napkin, so you know it's legit, and it said that Nick would be given control of any future Chippendales touring operations, and Nick and Steve would split the New York club. Steve would have control of the LA club too. But things went sour when Steve realized that the New York show was doing better than the LA show. It was more polished, choreographed, and really focused on storytelling, which is really a great sentence to have in a story about telling. (laughs) What is the story? (laughs) Maybe like how to get your clothes somewhere to do the laundry. Like maybe (laughs) it's a laundry story. So the New York show began with an MC introducing each waiter and host who then do a little dance maneuver as part of their introduction. During the main act, five dancers would take the stage, one frontman and four dancers, and they would start off by wearing pants, but would be in G-strings by the end of the performance. See, the laundry thing makes sense now. <laughs> and this show included about six skits, lip syncing and dancing. So the New York club, as we said, became an even bigger success than L.A.'s. Brooke Shields actually celebrated her 20th birthday at the New York Club, and the dancers from the New York location were always asked to be on daytime talk shows like Sally, Jesse, Raphael. I will say I don't remember (laughs) watching that. I actually do remember when the Chippendales would be on Sally, Jesse, Raphael. Mandy, what is happening? (laughs) What in the Freaky Friday is going on? How do you have this memory and I don't? First of all, Sally, Jesse was way too trashy, I feel like, for you to have watched at that time of your life. Ma'am, you would I it. grew up on Jerry <laughs> Springer. Oh, well, maybe you would have watched it then. How did you not I absolutely watch that? watched her. Oh. Yeah, I did. Yeah. It was definitely a little bit more raunchy. Mm-hmm. I watched Montel. I watched Sally Jesse Raphael, Jenny Jones, oh, Ricky yeah. Lake. Oh, I miss all of them. daytime talk shows. <laughs> like good ones. Yeah. Like trash like this. Yes, exactly. <laughs> So Nick was always on TV talking about Chippendales, which led him to be known as Mr. Chippendales, something that definitely did not sit right with Steve, who was actually the true founder. And so arguments between the two men become more vicious as Steve's jealousy grew. And so when it came to the creative direction of the show, they argued over what was more important, the performer's attractiveness or the production of it all. But whether Steve was thrilled about it or not, Nick's involvement in the brand is what helped Chippendales grow exponentially. By 1994, dancers were sent to malls across America for autograph signings and to flex their muscles and push a line of products including a Chippendales calendar, aerobic videotapes, glassware, playing cards, t-shirts, and puzzles. I will say I do not remember Chippendales at the mall. No, I don't. <laughs> I don't remember looking through Chippendales puzzles, uh, you know, to find, yeah, to no. find something, yeah. No, but this was apparently a pretty big business, and at this point, the total revenue for Chippendales was $20 million per year, so people were buying the puzzles, Melissa. Well, (laughs) I was wrong. (laughs) 
So meanwhile, as the brand was really soaring, Nick actually kind of started to change. He started to become more controlling, and he would even scream at the dancers if they made mistakes in the routine. A former performer later said that Nick and anyone affiliated with running the New York club was, quote, a snake in the grass. And he said that they would, quote, cut your throat for a nickel. Good Lord. Yeah. So eventually, Nick stepped down as choreographer for the New York show. And in December of 1986, Nick and Steve dissolved their partnership. However, Nick maintained licensing rights to the Chippendales name, which he used to take his dancers on tour which also he was allowed to do because of their paper napkin deal. Right. So this tour became very popular. Hundreds of women came out to see these shows, even on the weekdays. There was enough demand that this troupe would sometimes stay in one town for many weeks because people just kept coming to these shows. According to Bruce, who was the other partner, Steve was really upset by Nick's success with this Chippendales tour. Nick made a lot of money off the tour, and because of their napkin deal, he was going to be able to keep it all. Steve convinced himself that Nick stole the tour from him, even though that really wasn't the case. In November of 1986, Steve hired a new choreographer of his own to redesign and choreograph an improved show, but that really wasn't enough revenge for him. He became so jealous of Nick that he eventually asked his friend Ray if he could hire somebody to kill Nick instead. Ray was a former member of the Air Force and a reserve officer with Palm Springs Police in California, and he lived mostly off of his third wife's income after having been fired from a job as a diving instructor because he got a DUI. Ray and Steve became close shortly after the club first opened. So Ray ended up recruiting a guy named Gilberto Rivera Lopez to carry out a hit on Nick. On April 7th, 1987, Ray and Gilberto went to Nick's New York office shortly after 3.30 p.m. At 3.39, Gilberto walks into Nick's office and shot him once in the left cheek with a large caliber handgun. Moments later, the man working in the adjoining office walked in and found Nick's body. Detectives spoke with this man who told them that earlier in the day, a messenger had come in and asked for Nick. This coworker said he wasn't there, but he would be back later. This messenger was described as being around 35 to 40 years old, Hispanic, around 5 foot 7, 145 pounds, clean shaven with black or salt and pepper hair, and neatly dressed in a dark tan waist length jacket and blue jeans. When Nick's coworker went to the restroom a short time later, he noticed that this messenger was still there. He was actually walking out of the bathroom. So when the coworker comes back to his office, he sees Nick on the ground dead. No one actually witnessed the actual shooting. There were no signs of a robbery or a struggle. Nick had just been sitting at his desk when the shooter came into his office. So the next day, investigators announced that they had no motive yet but they were going to be investigating his business activities to see if there was any motive there. But they said that it appeared that Nick was a legitimate businessman who had been doing this work for several years. Nick's associate producer, Candace, immediately felt that Steve was the one behind Nick's murder. She told police that she spent a lot of time with Nick, and she never knew him to have a single enemy other than Steve. So for her, it just wasn't very hard to connect the dots. Police, on the other hand, couldn't connect the dots with evidence, so Nick's murder case eventually goes cold. Following Nick's death, Candace continued on as associate producer with Nick's Chippendale tour. The dancers were all very protective of her. They would escort her to her room after every show. 
Five months later, Candace left and she moved back to L.A. With Nick out of the way, Steve continued running Chippendales in L.A. and New York and also continued running his own touring company, which is the one that he started before Nick was shot. Over time, other male review groups for women began to emerge, and Steve did not like having competition and wanted them all to be wiped out. One group, Adonis, included several former members of Chippendales. They were an American-based group, but they were doing a lot of their operations in Britain. And Steve set out to shut down this group, so tensions between these two companies started to rise. The Chippendales' reputation started to change, and they became known for being the ones who played hardball. So, for example, Adonis complained to the Office of Fair Trading that Chippendales demanded contracts from venues that banned other groups from performing there for a year, which, yeah, that's a little bit um, kind of like shysty, you know, to like say, like, if we're going to perform here, then you have to agree that you won't let anyone other, you know, any other group like us perform here for a year. That's a little like you can't like undercut. I get the same weekend. Well, yeah, sure. Or I mean. Uh, yeah, I don't know. You just maybe. Can't do that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's just I'm like that's as far as I think you could go with it. Yeah, uh, but it wasn't just the serious dance groups that got shut down. At one point, a DJ from New Mexico thought that it would be funny to create a group of overweight dancers and call them the Chunkendales, and it was going to be like a similar performance to the Chippendales, where the performers were dressed, you know, only with like a little, a little black spandex pant. Um, But Steve's lawyer sent a letter, basically a cease and desist, telling them not to go on with this show. That's literally the Patrick Swayze and uh, Chris Farley sketch right there. Yeah, it is. (laughs) So in August of 1988, the original Chippendales location in LA got shut down because they repeatedly violated their capacity limits. The occupancy limit was 230, but inspectors would often find as many as 435 people inside at one time. That gives me claustrophobic feelings, even though I'm sitting here by myself. Right. (laughs) Just to even think of that many people in a club. So um, the club was actually given 14 overcrowding notices between 1983 and 1988 alone, making this club what the fire marshal called the worst violator he experienced in his 10 years as marshal. After the club closed, Steve continued operating the touring company from an office in Santa Monica. And we have a lot more to get into after one last break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. It's that time of year again, the time to hurry up and wait. Whether it's waiting in line to see Santa, waiting for your apple pie to bake, or if you're like me, just waiting in line to buy the apple pie because who are we even kidding? The time for both hectic and memorable holidays is here. But the good news is, while everyone else is staring at their phones, willing the time to pass, you can be playing Best Fiends. Best Fiends is the free-to-download casual mobile puzzle game that you have to try out for yourself. I am a huge Best Fiends head and honestly play for a few minutes every day. It's really my way to zone out and to relax. There's something so satisfying about completing a new level that gives me a small win for the day, but still a win nonetheless. I love strategizing and playing different fiends on different levels. It's really low stakes, but it's high fun. I'm on level 3,520 and I'm still playing every day. I never get bored because they're constantly changing themes and with the holidays coming up, it's even more fun. I can also power up my favorite fiends on new levels for even more powerful skills, and the more you play, the stronger they get. You've earned your fun time. Go to the App Store or Google Play to download Best Fiends for free. 
Plus, earn even more with $5 worth of in-game rewards when you reach level 5. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than deciding to listen to another episode of your favorite podcast. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? Get started today. It only takes about five minutes to open an account with Capital One, and there's no minimum to open and keep your account. That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank. Capital One NA member FDIC. Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home? Introducing DashPass from DoorDash, your ultimate ticket to convenience and savings. With DashPass, you gain exclusive access to unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, along with members-only deals and discounts that will leave your wallet smiling. Whether you're craving the flavors of your favorite restaurants, need groceries from across town, or anything in between, DashPass ensures that everything you need is just a few clicks away, delivered right to your door. With DashPass, not only do you enjoy $0 delivery fees, but you'll also benefit from lower service fees on eligible orders, making it the most affordable way to satisfy your cravings and stock up on essentials from your local favorites. What I really love is how quickly DashPass pays for itself. On average, it takes just two orders, which makes it a no-brainer investment for your budget. And as if that weren't enough, DashPass grants you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items, adding an extra layer of excitement to your DoorDash experience. You get all this for only $9.99 a month, which is a small price to pay for unlimited convenience and savings. My family and I have had DoorDash for the past year or so, and while I make most meals at home, I don't know that I could mom without it. I used it twice just this past week while we were dealing with a stomach bug at home, and it was so nice to have and to be able to focus on getting better and not running all over town to pick everything up for everyone. Don't wait. Sign up for DashPass now and unlock a world of possibilities, all from the comfort of your home. DashPass from DoorDash, delivering joy, convenience, and savings straight to your doorstep. Get more from delivery for less with DashPass. $0 delivery fees and reduced service fees on eligible DoorDash orders. Sign up for DashPass today and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply. Now back to the episode. So before the break, we were speaking about the murder of Nick and how this case had really gone cold. And so in July of 1991, four years after Nick was shot and his case actually went cold, there was finally a new lead. A man named Lynn Bressler offered himself up to the FBI as an informant, and he alleged that a man named Ray recently asked him to travel to Britain and kill two members of Adonis who were performing at the Winter Gardens in Blackpool. Ray allegedly told Lynn that the targets were Adonis's business manager, Steve White, and a former Chippendales employee, Reed Scott. Although Ray actually said that anyone could be killed in Reed's place, but the most important person to take out was Steve White, the company's business manager. That would be crazy to hear about later, to be like, you can kill this guy or another. I truly don't care. You have to kill this one guy, but the second one, totally your choice. Wild. Ray told Lynn he'd give him $25,000 for each hit. So Lynn went to Ray's house in LA, where Ray provided him with a small eyedrops bottle containing cyanide. Ray told Lynn to inject the victims with it. And Ray also gave Lynn a map and directions to where Adonis's group was staying in Blackpool. On July 12th, Ray drove Lynn to the airport where he was supposed to board a plane to London. 
Before he left, Ray told Lynn to call him Strawberry as a code name, and that after the murders were complete, Lynn needed to call Ray and say the phrase, quote, I signed up that draft choice from the South, end quote. I mean, these sound like <laughs> <laughs> these sound like code names and code words, and like you're clearly doing something if you call another person strawberry right. <laughs> and have draft choices. This is this is wild. But instead of getting on that flight, Lynn went to the FBI. He told investigators he thought the whole thing was a joke at first, but when he realized that Ray was serious, he went to authorities, which is a nice change in these kind of stories, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Well, I mean, I feel like it's all fun and games until you're at the airport about to board an international flight. And then you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, like, maybe I shouldn't do this and I should actually tell like the police. Reed Scott, one of the men that had a target on his back, later told People Magazine about his experience with Steve and the Chippendales. He said that in the early 1980s, he had his first audition with Chippendales, and then he moved up in the company and was able to work directly with Steve and Nick, who he said used to go toe-to-toe with each other all the time. In June of 1991, Reed left Chippendales and joined Adonis. A month later, in July, he was actually pulled off stage during a performance and told that there were FBI agents there to speak to him. And these agents told Reed that there was a contract out for his life and somebody was planning to inject him with cyanide. So the officers told Reed, this is this part blew me away. They told him that he could either run and hide or he could stay and help the police catch the killer before they got to him. Uh, yeah. Well, I, <laughs> it's your choice. You can yeah, either totally run and hide. Fine. <laughs> right. Somebody wants to kill you right now, but will you help us? Yeah. Please? That was just kind of odd to me. Like, I, I don't know. You would think that they would like offer to like put him somewhere safe right. or like with yeah. police Not protection. on stage where people are allowed to touch him. Right. Exactly. So I thought that was just really strange and interesting. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So Reed said this was just chaos and it was like something you would see in a movie, not in real life. Reed decided to stay though and help the authorities catch the person who had hired Lynn to kill himself and two others. He stayed quiet and kept up appearances for years, living in constant fear and always looking over his shoulder. He even slept with the lights on. So after hearing what Lynn had to say, investigators conducted a search on Ray's home. And inside they found a canvas bag that had 46 grams of cyanide, which was enough to kill 230 people. What? Yeah. I I don't even want to know. I don't even like asking questions such as where does a person get cyanide? But like, seriously, I don't don't, understand. Don't tell us. I don't don't want to know. But like, Mm -mm. uh, those are the kind of questions that come up in my head because I'm like, what? Like, how do you even get that? Where? Who do you? It just is mind blowing to me. I don't understand. Don't Google it either, Mandy. No, I'm not. I would never. (laughs) Um, So the FBI then bugged a call between Ray and Lynn where they were discussing how to carry out the hit. And of course, they were using all these code words and phrases like we said before. So Ray said, um, essentially, in codes, what he essentially said was that Lynn should hit the victims in the head with a brick or something similar to that before injecting them with the cyanide. So this recorded call gave authorities enough evidence to have Ray arrested. For seven months, Ray sat in jail and refused to talk. But finally, he did decide to cooperate and told the police that Steve had actually offered to give him up to $8,000 in a down payment for the murders of these Adonis employees. Ray also told the authorities that Steve was the one who asked him to kill Nick DeNoya. Steve had threatened Ray by saying that he had 
quote, organized crime contracts, and that if Ray didn't kill Nick, then Steve would have someone kill Ray. So Ray said that Steve gave him $500 to even buy a gun, and then that's when he hired Gilberto to actually carry out the shooting. In addition to convincing Ray to murder Nick, Steve allegedly hired him to commit arson on three separate occasions. Two of the attempts led to minor damage at competitor establishments, and there were plans to burn down a third competitor's building, but Steve abandoned the idea after learning that arson would be difficult to complete. There isn't really too much known about these incidents. We know that one took place in March of 1979, and that was the attempted arson of Moody's Disco in Santa Monica. The second attempt was at the Red Onion Restaurant and Bar in Marina del Rey in 1984 or 1985. So after this meeting with Ray, officers learned that Gilberto was already in prison for an unrelated crime. So they worked to gather evidence against Steve in order to arrest him. So they asked Ray to wear a wire in exchange for a reduced sentence for himself. Ray wanted the deal, but he wasn't really sure how to go about talking to Steve. Steve wasn't stupid. He knew Ray was in jail, so it would be immediately suspicious for him to just randomly call him and be like, hey, guy, remember all the things (laughs) we used to do and all the crimes we used to commit? And so Ray comes up with this plan to tell Steve that he was out of prison on a medical furlough due to health problems. He told Steve he wanted some hush money so that he could flee the country. So they meet up at an IHOP in California, but Steve was one step ahead of Ray. He made Ray go into the bathroom to talk, but anytime he answered a question, he would write it down on a post-it note instead of saying it out loud. Then he'd take the post-it note, rip it up, flush it down the toilet. I actually thought this was genius. Don't anybody do this, but like, yeah, smart, right? right? Now, like, where even is your evidence? It's not even there. So Steve was clearly paranoid about Ray potentially working with police because he also made him strip down to his boxers. Luckily, though, the wire that Steve was actually wearing was in his boxers, and Steve didn't see it. Steve told Ray he wouldn't talk to him anymore unless they went out of the country. So they made a plan to meet in Switzerland, a place that Steve thought was some sort of a safe haven. So when they arrived in Switzerland, Ray convinced Steve to go to his room so they could talk. But what Steve didn't know was that the FBI was in the room next door, recording every word of their conversation. Steve admitted to giving Ray the money to buy a gun and giving him Nick's office address. Steve asked Ray about the gun. He wanted to know what happened to it. And they also discussed the attempted murders of the Adonis employees. Before this conversation was over, Steve said he'd take his own life or flee to India if he was ever caught for any of this. Ray later pleaded guilty to conspiracy and murder for hire. He did get a reduced sentence of up to 15 years in prison, and he was released after serving his time in 1996 and placed on house arrest. Gilberto, the man who actually shot and killed Nick, was convicted of second-degree murder and sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. Finally, on September 2nd, 1993, Steve was arrested on six federal charges, including conspiracy to commit murder in the case of the three Adonis employees. Prosecutors argued that Steve should not be awarded bond because he told an informant that he planned to leave the country or hurt himself if he was caught. A grand jury was held to determine if Steve would have any other charges brought against him. After the grand jury hearing on October 6th, Steve was indicted on seven counts of violating the Federal Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act through a pattern of racketeering activity that included murder, in the case of Nick, murder for hire, solicitation to commit murder, and arson. 
Steve was facing life in prison and a $1.75 million fine. One of his charges stemmed from 1990 when Steve had apparently tried to orchestrate the murder of a doctor in Marina Del Rey. So the indictment doesn't actually say why this doctor specifically was targeted, but word has it that he was in some kind of a business dispute with Steve, and this murder-for-hire plan ended up being foiled, but the indictment also doesn't say how that happened. Prosecutors in Steve's trial said that Steve would hire somebody to kill or burn any competitor or anything that got in his way, and that Steve was willing to engage in extremely violent acts in order to further his business interests. But even in the face of plenty of evidence, those who knew Steve still had a hard time believing that he was capable of any of this. He was known for being a pretty pleasant man. The Independent said that Steve was about as likely to plot a murder as Mickey Mouse is to take heroin. Okay, calm down. (laughs) That's quite a comparison. (laughs) How did you get there? Right. Um, So many also said Steve was very soft-spoken and he preferred the company of his family to high living. Which that's all good and great, but if you just have this competitive nature about you right. and you have to succeed at everything, the money doesn't seem to matter to him. It's right. the success. So on July 29th, 1994, Steve entered into a plea deal with the prosecution. He pleaded guilty to the murder for hire of Nick DeNoya and guilty to orchestrating the attempted arson of the Red Onion. So as part of the deal, all the other charges were dropped, and Steve agreed to accept a minimum of 26 years in prison and to forfeit his interest in Chippendales. He was scheduled to be sentenced on October 24th of that same year. But when October 24th rolled around, Steve wouldn't be in court. Shortly before 4 a.m., 47-year-old Steve was found dead in his cell at the Metropolitan Detention Center. According to the executive warden, Steve used a piece of bed sheet to hang himself from a wall-mounted coat hanger. The warden said that although Steve had been suffering from depression, there was no indication that he was suicidal at the time, although he did say he would take his own life if he was caught. So as of this day, Chippendales remains a household name. There has been a long-form podcast and numerous documentaries done about this case, and later this month, actually November 22nd, Hulu is releasing a miniseries called Welcome to Chippendales, which will be based on the life of Steve. The series was inspired by the book Deadly Dance by K. Scott McDonald and Patrick Montes Dioka. So this series was created by Robert Siegel, who's known for Pam and Tommy, which I think was also on Hulu. It stars Kamel Nanjiani as Steve, and Kamel is an actor and screenwriter, as well as being one of our dear Haley's favorite people in comedy. He's so great. If you've seen Silicon Valley, I love him. He did a whole movie with his wife. (laughs) He's incredible. He's really, really funny, though. He's been in Veep, all kinds of stuff. So Murray Bartlett, known for his role in The White Lotus, so last season, I looked him up because I was like, I know White Lotus. He's the guy who played like the manager of the hotel in White Lotus. Oh, I can't yeah. remember if you watched it. I yeah, did. I did. I love White Lotus. There's a new season. Have you started watching it? I did. I watched the first episode. I just have no idea where it's going whatsoever, which is Me what too. I like about yeah. that series. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, he is playing Nick DeNoya. And Dan Stevens is playing Paul Snyder, who's the man who murdered Dorothy Stratton that we talked about earlier in the year. And her character in the series is played by Nicola Peltz. So it's definitely one. I've started seeing previews and stuff for this. Yeah. I don't do a lot of Hulu, so I'll have to. I think I even pay for it. I just don't ever go on there. So I need to start going on there. (laughs) Yeah. No, it's one of those things where, oh, I just watched the Jerry Falwell documentaries on there. That was pretty good. Um, so they they do like get these like uh, 
one-off kind of things. Like I'll watch Hulu and then forget about it for a month and then something big will come on it. Like that's, I don't spend a lot of time on there, but it's (laughs) it's something like this. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Wow. That is, that was quite a story. I'm really glad that we were able to cover this one because I remember thinking I wanted to know, uh, I knew that there was more with Chippendales whenever we were talking about the Dorothy Stratton case earlier this year. And so it's kind of cool to come back to kind of come make it full circle there and finish telling, you know, all of that story. Right. Yeah, for sure. And I couldn't believe that we did this story back in February. I know. I was thinking summer. I know. I know. Whenever I had to go look up and see, like, when did we actually do that? I was like, huh, it's been almost a year since we did that story. Yeah, it does not feel like that long at all. Wild times. Yeah. So, all right, we're going to move on to last thing before we go. And we're going to keep it in the same vein that we had last week and talk some more about our current obsession Love is Blind Season 3. <laughs> Love is Blind Season 3. Not on Hulu. It's on Netflix. Catch up. There will be spoilers. So yes. get ready. We can't edit those out. I mean, I could, <laughs> but that's very lazy and it would be against the whole point of what we're doing. Yes. Mandy, last week... You were just in love with these people. You thought these couples were so great. No one's toxic. Mm. Everyone's great. You love Matt. Matt and Colleen. Now everyone's Matt toxic. No one's so great. so good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that comes from you being trusting of people and me not trusting people. So I'm like, it totally just is. Reason. See, it yeah. totally is. I feel like I always am so like optimistic and I want to see the best in people. And I'm like, oh, I really think these people have a shot. And I think this, you know, they have great intentions. And then it's like the more you see of them, like, but this is, I don't know. Is it better to be upfront, uh, just right off the bat, skeptical of people? Or is it better like to be like me and just constantly be getting let down by Girl, people? <laughs> this is how I live my life. So let's not go. <laughs> let's not do this. I don't need to have a mental breakdown about this after about how I'm living my life. For me, the kind of personality I have, I do much better always being skeptical. I'm not going to like write somebody off, but I'm going to keep you at arm's length until you give me a reason to trust you or not to trust you. Then I'm going to figure it out. So I've, I, I live by that very much. And there's probably friendships I don't have because I'm like, this person gives me a weird vibe or whatever, (laughs) but I don't care. I'm just, I'm okay with all of that, but I wish I could be in some ways more trusting, but I also like that to me, it's too scary. Yeah. Yeah, It's too scary. (laughs) But you know what? Good for you. Good for your positive attitude. Negative Nancy over here ain't doing it. So let's start. (laughs) Who do you want to start with this week? Like our little updates? Uh, I don't know. I didn't even come with any notes in this. I didn't either. So we'll we'll do this. How about I'll just name some couples. So Alexa and Brennan are still the most like docile. Yes. Whatever. And actually, I still do like them. I think I said I liked them in the beginning as well. And because I I really liked her and I feel like I still like her and I love her family, even though there's some things about her family that I think are a little um, like calm down just a little. Yeah, just a little little bit. But otherwise, I do think I like her family because I like the way that they're very much like they just I like the way they joke and they say things and they're very like blunt and um, yeah, yeah. it reminds me a lot of my family, except we aren't rich like that. So, right. <laughs> um, but otherwise, like I love all their personalities and I really do feel like they are a good fit for each other. I think um, Alexa, like I get the sense that she is kind of wanting to move a little bit away from like the extravagant lifestyle. You know, she wants to be a stay at home mom. She wants to have like certain things. And so I feel like she is kind of looking at, 
at Brennan, who has kind of that, he was kind of brought up with those similar um, ideals and wasn't brought up in the same type of like affluent lifestyle she was. And I actually think that she likes that. And I think that's why they are going to probably be really good together. So I like yeah. them rooting for them. I think they're really adorable. And I think they go great together. They have good personalities um, that mesh well together. Totally. I would have never put them together, but I think they complement each other really, really well. I know they did talk about them not having had an argument yet, but neither of them seem so vicious that an argument would be a deal breaker. It would just kind of be like, let's figure out how to work through this. So I, I appreciate that with both of them. And I think that says a lot about their personalities that they can do that. Now, speaking of arguing, um, (laughs) honestly, I'm looking at all these names and it could be about any of them. Um, let's go, uh, Nancy and Bartice. What are your thoughts now? They Please have up. updated your brain with the Bartise nonsense. They need to split up. Bartise needs to go find himself. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think that was the F word you were going to say. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, on our show, yes, but I was like, what? <laughs> that too, right? Um, yes. He, he is a lot. He's young. He's very young. We talked about that last time. Yes. But he's young and doesn't think. He's, he's young, like arrogant. he's like I'm very, I'm very mature for my age. It's and like my son not. is like I'm a yeah. preteen, right? <laughs> like, calm down, buddy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think yeah. she handles things in a very respectful way. Yeah, I feel like they definitely are not right for each other, and because I also feel like, like he. Sometimes I feel like he seems genuine, and that he really does want to like try to put in the effort and make the relationship work despite like some of these things that are not ideal to him like but for example he clearly is not physically attracted to her like not at least not to the degree that he like would be to someone else I mean he's really expressed that like himself and even his family is was like oh this is not the typical girl that you would go for you know she's beautiful but it's definitely somebody different so gorgeous right she is there's absolutely nothing wrong with the way she looks but you know like somebody once told me something like um, about different people, like everybody being beautiful in their own way. It's kind of like having a cookie preference, right? Like just because I prefer Oreos, you know, to chocolate chip cookies, like that doesn't mean chocolate chip cookies are bad. You know, it just means I don't, I prefer Oreos. So it's not like saying like one or the other, but that's how I feel about Nancy, like being compared to like other women. Like what is wrong with Nancy? Absolutely nothing, you know, but I feel like if he doesn't think that, and if he's not like I feel like he needs to like cut things off with her instead of continuing to lead her on because that's not going to improve. And that's my one complaint with him is I feel like he keeps saying like, no, no, no. But then he keeps saying like, yes, looks matter. And he keeps having that same conversation over and over again. So I'm like, well, obviously you're hung up on this. So maybe this is not the relationship for you. Here's the thing. My, I am not the most attractive person in the world. Not saying that for pity. I just literally know there are supermodels in the world. Like I, so I'm very aware of that. You are a beautiful woman. <laughs> okay. Well, last time you laughed, the last time I was I'm not degrading. laughing at that. I'm you just said right. <laughs> I know. And, well, it's I, I know, but I mean, but I get my, it. But my point is, my husband. I, I'm not stupid. There are very beautiful women in the world. Like I would not. Ex- I would never ask him, am I more beautiful than Giselle? Right. I'm not stupid. But he's not stupid enough to say, you know who's hotter than you? Giselle. Like that is where he's – that's what Bartise keeps doing. He's just telling her all the people that are more attractive. Right. And she is – and he's insane because she is a freaking gem and he would be so lucky. And she is so sweet. That's the thing. She's way too sweet for him. I feel like he is going to break her heart if they stay together. And that's why I hope they split up sooner rather than later because I 
I don't think I just don't think it's got. But the laugh, a good I need her, her to stop laughing. It's, <laughs> the laugh is too much for me. I'm I I take back everything I said. Okay, Ra- uh, Mandy, what about um, SK and Raven? We know what's happened to them, and we can I, discuss that. Uh, Have your thoughts changed on Raven? Kind of, yes. I do feel okay. like Raven came around a little, and I started to feel like she was genuinely getting more into the relationship. And and you know, and that's fine. Some people are like that where they you know, they need a little bit of time to like get to know a person and develop feelings for them. I'm not saying that that was the wrong way um, in the beginning, you know, that she was kind of standoffish. I feel like she did start coming around and she really was making an effort to try and like, especially as it pertained to like learning his culture and wanting to make a good impression on his family. And I felt like that was really coming from a genuine place on her behalf, you know, and wanting to make things, um, wanting his mom to like her and just everything, you know, I felt like, but they, they definitely had some serious fundamental difference. And I was actually really happy whenever they went to lunch with her friends and like her friends were calling out some of these problems that they foresee, you know, coming up in the future, like SK planning on moving and going to California to go to college, which for two years, for two years. But then there was all this, like I was saying, you know, there's so much um, culturally that's different. And and because he was talking about how he basically was going to be living like a student and wasn't going to be working. And so, you know, Raven works and has worked and supports herself and has her lifestyle and she does her thing. And so I was kind of like, wait a minute, there's no way this guy just came on the show and thought he was going to get married and then leave this person with, you know, he's not going to be working. He's going to be off in school and expecting this new wife to take care of him financially. But then at the same time, they were having that whole conversation with his um, mom and, you know, the other women there at the dress fitting when they were talking about how it's important for her to let him be the breadwinner and let him do this thing. So I can see how Raven would be like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do in this situation because that's how I would feel. I would be like, what is right for me to do? And like, what is wrong? Like, I don't know how to navigate this very odd, different situation. But like, I felt like there was just too much. Um, And then with him moving and going away for two years, like that would be, I would honestly be like so offended and like insulted if somebody came on the show and I fell in love with them and wanted to get married. And then their whole plan all along was to leave the first two years of our marriage. Oh, yeah. Well, that's the thing is uh, love is blind. Nick and Vanessa, maybe they could actually do something and like interview them and say, hey, do you plan on leaving immediately after you're married for two years? Right. Yes or no? Because that he should have never been on the show because that's it's obvious you're going to need that time, especially in the beginning. It's one thing if your husband or my husband decided to do that now. Right. Sure, we'd want to kill them. We wouldn't, but we'd want to because it's we know what a commitment that's going to be, right? But you're married to them. That's your partner. Like, you make decisions together. Okay, you're going to, you know, figure out what's best for your family. But to just come into it and be like, I have to take off for two years. Hope you can keep, you know, hold down the fort. That is just wild. So... Um, but did you watch the actual ceremony part for the two of them? I did. I did. Okay. And I was, yes, we can talk. This is major spoiler. So if you haven't gotten to the end, then don't uh, listen to this part. But yeah, so they were up there. I was surprised. I have to say I was shocked because I will say I thought that she was going to say no um, because of all the reasons I just discussed and because I <laughs> felt like in the beginning I wasn't sure if she really was even into him. Um, and so I for sure thought she was going to say no. But Melissa, what actually happened? He said no to her. He said basically, I was so confused because he was like, I don't want to marry you today. And she's like, oh, give me a hug. And I'm like, wait, what? 
are you? And then she like walks off. I'm like, oh, she's pissed. But I just wasn't expecting her to like have the give me a hug reaction. Although I could see doing something like that. Oh, I totally would. Especially if you're caught off guard and you're like, really, we're not expecting it. Like, I don't know, because then she did. She like was kind of like holding back tears, and she was like, "Oh, thanks for coming. Like, I'm gonna fix my makeup." Yeah, that was totally just like nervousness. Like, get me out of here, like right now. Oh, for sure. Well, I I think her she's interesting to me because I do think she's one of those people that you meet and like a few months later you're like, you know what? I hated you at first, right? And now you're she's just very closed off, yeah. And like you just have to get to know her. And so I think, of course, in all these, they get like weird edits and you kind of get typecast into something. And and that was kind of hers, like the standoffish, you know, rude person or whatever. But I think she ended up being very like likable in general. Like, I don't want to be your best friend, but like it started off rough for her. So I was, I'm glad, I'm glad that didn't work out. She doesn't need to deal with that. No. Um, And and I still like SK. Yeah. I liked him, but that was was stupid. He had a lot of goals and he was obviously very smart and he had big dreams and aspirations for himself, which I think is great. And so I do think he'll be a good partner for somebody, but I don't think, I think there was too, they had too many actual like fundamental differences for them to actually work out. For sure. Okay. Next, let's do Xenobin Cole. They are so exhausting. So somebody wrote us on um, Instagram and said that they actually know Zeneb and (laughs) yeah, and said that like, she's getting kind of a bad edit and like, isn't, you know, we know that we know we're getting like, of course, an hour It's made for TV. Exactly. So, so I want to give her that right off the bat. Um, But I feel like she wants to be a mom and he is a kid. (laughs) So she wants to like mother him like it's too much for sure. And he like gives her reasons to do that, which is also annoying. Like it almost works, but it doesn't because you literally have the most wacky relationship ever. Right. It's gross. Right. Yeah. I um, I don't think they should really go say I do to no. each other because it again, it's too much like fundamental differences. And really, I guess in this case, it's a little bit of maturity and age difference. And I'm not saying that it can't work out for you to be in a relationship with somebody who's, you know, so much younger than you or so much older than you or whatever. But um, in this case, I feel like they're just at two different stages in life and they just aren't really looking for the same thing. I think he is still really playful and wants to have a lot of fun and just wants to goof around and, you know, just have like these fun, intimate moments with his partner where she's a little bit more serious and she's ready to like settle down and like make, you know, make solid plans and not be living so by the seat of her pants. And so I just feel like they're not in the same place, you know, in life and that I mean, I don't. But pretending that that they are, they're both pretending that they're okay with what the other person's doing. Exactly. Sometimes where he's like, "Well, you wanted me to pick up the, you know, towel on the floor," and she's like, "Well, I mean, I guess." And I'm like, "No, you just freaked out about that. You, yeah, you did. Don't try to take that back, girl." Yeah. Um, because it's annoying too. I understand that too, but it's almost like because they're rushed into this absolute commitment, huge engagement, like you've skipped all those other steps where you can say to somebody, hey, it bugs me when I clean up and you leave your stuff on the ground. I'm still saying that to my husband. Well, I just, just, it's an acts of service thing. I think she likes acts of service and he's just kind of like, oh, I love you. I love you. I love you. And thinks that that's okay. Well, I also feel like she could lay off the passive aggressive way that she approaches things a lot. Like, you know how she'll like, for example, she like walked up or something or she'll say something like, you know, it would be really cool if you used a laundry basket or something like that, you know, and I'm like, 
wouldn't why wouldn't you just be like, oh, do you need me to bring you a laundry basket or something like that where you're still getting your point across but not being like a total – you know, not being so it like to- brash. It very about much it. is like, where it's like, ooh, oh, the chicken thing when they were like, cook- he was like, I'm going to cook for you, and she basically took over it. And it's like, well, listen, or the yes, wine glass. Oh stuff. my god. Oh yeah. There, there's just like so many <laughs> so things. Many like things. She acts like his mom, where it's like she's taking over, and it's like, well, do you want him to do this nice thing for you, or do you want him to do it how you want him to? Right. Like, you, you can't. Probably can't have both. <laughs> yeah. No, I agree. It's too much of a maturity um difference to me i feel like they just aren't gonna make they won't be able to work i agree okay final couple who you claim to be your favorite couple last week i would have you say and i was very confused on that because colleen and matt because colleen and matt mandy what do you think of matt i think matt has a dark side and he actually scares me he's scary the thing where he's like say it yeah say it the way he, chills. Like, he gets this, like, look in his eyes, and it's very, like, you can, like, tell, like, whenever he's, like, flying off the handle. But, like, I worry that he – I don't know. I don't know. I don't like it. I do not like his temper. I don't like thinking about, like, what he could be like when he's, like, really angry and there's no cameras rolling. Cameras, like, yeah. Yeah. So, like, that kind of stuff, like, scares me with him. He is way too um, impulsive and – I don't always think that's a great quality in a person. But, I don't um, ever think it's yeah. a good quality. He like, I don't know. And like I can see, and Colleen has her own little quirks and things, you know, about her. But like I do think that she for, I feel like for her age, because she is like still pretty young. And like I feel like she is, has her head on straight for the most part. But right. she, but she, and she, I, I don't know that I think she knows what she wants, you know, as far out of this whole experience or like if she's ready to be married right now. But um, I do feel like she has her head a little straighter than Matt does. And, um, you know, she was kind of complaint. She was saying to him too about she just didn't know if she could count on him to like be there because every time they have like any little minor disagreement, he's like packing his bags and leaving. And so I get where she's coming from with that, you know, like already so early on, like all these little things are like upsetting him to the point where he's like, I'm done, I'm done. But like every single time that's his like, yeah, what he says. Yeah. And none of it seems like it's that big to ever hit that level. Like, this isn't her cheating on him. You know what I mean? Like, right. he's been cheated on. That girl had a baby with somewhere else. He's obviously very hurt and obviously has not processed all that because it was a big thing that happened to him. That right. really sucks. But maybe you shouldn't jump into just getting married to somebody that you don't know so you don't trust. Right. So it seems like the worst idea for him. He genuinely could be scary. At least the edit we're getting on TV is scary. Yeah. And um, and she does seem to be giving hints like to other people like, ah, and then he did this. And I'm like, good for you, girl. Get it all out because you need to see how he handles this around other people. And so other people can see this. Like, I feel like she's trying to hint to him like, I'm not going through with this. Yeah. Like, so he's not just at there on the day of. And like loses his mind. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's not a good one. It's not no. a good one. So. I, I whenever I started watching the other ones, I was like, okay, yeah. So the things I did not like about this smarmy guy, yeah, feel right now. Absolutely, so, yeah. He definitely gives ugh. me the creeps. I do not like him. Who did they leave us with the cliffhanger? Oh, um, it's Nancy and Bartice. Okay, They're at the altar. So we don't know what happened. I googled it, so I think I do not on purpose I was trying to see like the names of all the couples so I could write them down uh, and then I saw a little blurb but I don't know if it's true and uh, I'll share it but okay it is what it is yeah so yeah so the new episodes will be coming out I think Wednesday 
When start? Last ones, right? I think they're the last yes. ones. Yes, yes, they'll okay. be the last ones. So yeah, so I guess um, we One will more week of this. We will, <laughs> yeah. So we'll talk about them then in the next episode. Yeah, that sounds good. And next episode, we will have a an announcement of sorts that we, we still will. can't actually announce, but it'll be very close, and you'll have to check our social media. But it's it's really cool. Yes. Remember when we said we had something cool that we did, but we couldn't talk about it, but we'll be announcing soon. Well, this is the announcement. The that continuation we'll be soon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, gosh. Yeah, yes. that's that's how we do things. Coming up soon. All right, guys. Well, that was it for this week. We will be back next week. Same time, same place. New story. Have a great week. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.